the new school year about to start marks the beginning of the government's new national standard system for primary school students. The scheme sets national targets in reading, writing, and maths, and parents will begin to receive charts and reports showing their children's progress. Its introduction has been widely criticised, and last year our education correspondent Gail Woods explored whether the standards will achieve their goal of lifting achievement. I don't really like tests. Like if you're off task for the day, if it was a very important test, it could really count against your future. I think they're okay. I don't hate them, but I don't love them. I do not like doing tests. When you do tests, you get them wrong. Your friends might laugh at you. After four years in the school system, these children are well versed in what testing is all about. Now, the assessment that primary schools are legally required to do is about to take on a much greater significance. It's a controversial move, which has prompted warnings about the potential dangers of unleashing unintended consequences, including the branding of some children as failures. The Minister of Education, Anne Tolley, admits that at times responsibility for the policy weighs heavily. Yes, it does. Of course, it does. You're just a human being. But at the heart of it is lifting student achievement. Um, uh, yes, I toss and turn in the in the middle of the night, as as you would expect. Um, but I'm confident that we will see improvement in in student learning. The new national standards for primary schools are the centrepiece of the government's so-called crusade on literacy and numeracy. While the New Zealand education system is regarded internationally as being of a high standard, even enviable, the blot on the landscape is what is commonly called the long tail of underachievement, which includes a disproportionate number of Māori and Pacific students. International education reports such as the OECD's four-yearly PISA study repeatedly highlight the failure of the education system here to reduce the wide gap between the top students and the 15 to 20 percent of children at the bottom of the achievement graph. It's a black mark that politicians can't ignore. Mrs Tolley says one of the main reasons for introducing standards is to tackle the tail. I think the scariest thing from the PISA was the, the, the tail and the distance between the tail and our, t- so our bottom and our top performers. And that, that's really scary. And I think that what, that's what galvanised us to say things have got to change, and particularly for our Māori and Pacifica students. Um, because we've always had a tail, and we've talked about that for 30 years, but actually it's, it's not necessarily getting bigger, but it's getting further from the top. There is a school of thought, though, that says that's just a poverty issue. I actually think that's an excuse. And I, when I talk to principals, I say to them, look, you can't change where a child comes from in their background. What you have to do is concentrate on the time that you have them. And if you're a good educator, you can, you, you know, that's your job. That, that's, you're a professional. And so you've got to do what you can do with them when you've got them. The Education Review Office is the agency that evaluates what schools are doing. If the tale of underachievement has galvanised the government to put its faith in national standards, review office reports provide a potent argument that many schools need to do a much better job with student assessment. The chief reviewer, Graham Stoop, says half of the country's schools have a good grasp on assessment practices and are using them in an effective way to help children make progress. He says the other half require a lot of work to get to that level. So will national standards make the difference? Aero's position has been, for a long time now, that assessment is important to the whole process of achievement in schools. What's the proof that national standards are going to make the difference? 
Well, that will be uh, a job for Aero to do in the future as we evaluate the success of the implementation of national standards. But at this stage, there's no evidence that you can point to that says that's where national standards have been implemented and that is the difference that they have made to student achievement. Well, in this country, of course, the policy is still under development, so I wouldn't be able to comment any more on that. The Minister, Anne Tolley, remains confident national standards are the way forward, identifying pupils who are below the standards so that they can be given extra help. That confidence isn't shared to nearly the same extent by many of those involved in schools. The New Zealand Educational Institute is the union and professional association for the vast majority of the country's 30,000 primary school teachers. The NZDI president, Francis Nelson, says in themselves the standards won't raise the tail. We know that national standards is not what's going to make the difference. What national standards will do is give us a very clear benchmark against which to, to measure the rate of progress of our students. National standards are indicators, they're not what makes the difference. Teaching makes the difference. The new standards will spell out what children should be expected to achieve in reading, writing and maths at each year of their schooling. But Francis Nelson says it's not as if schools are operating without standards at the moment. Because we work in a self-managing model in terms of our schools, people have a range of ways that they determine whether their children are meeting those standards. We set the parameters around that as individual schools and we use a range of things to do that. Many of them norm referenced but supported by teachers' professional judgment about what children can do in various sort of contexts within a classroom. So what this will do is normalise and standardise across the sector what it is that we're aiming for. Schools currently use a range of tests such as PATs, ASTIL and STAR, names familiar to many pupils and their parents. Anne Tolley says those tests will remain, but results from them will be aligned against the new standards to get a common measure that will allow comparisons. The hardest task is to align all those different assessment techniques because there is no one form of assessment. Whatever teachers are using at the moment, they can continue to use. They're the ones that decide the appropriate methods of assessment for their students. So then we want to align those onto the standards and we have a technical advisory group overseeing that process. As a member of the National Standards Reference Group, the NZDI's Francis Nelson has seen what's intended and says that the new standards have a lot of potential. They focus on good teaching practice and good assessment practice. They focus on the teacher's knowledge of the student and that, that sort of relationship between the child and the teacher around the assessment processes. They have a lot of promise. What we are concerned about is what happens to the data if you collect all this information and the media pick it up and put it into a league table, what's that going to do for education? And we know that's a disaster. The Principals Federation's President Ernie Bootfeld says he too is comfortable with the first batch of standards, but he shares Francis Nelson's concern about how the information will be used. We're looking here at supporting schools to do a better job rather than in ranking, and the ranking, I think, is, is a dangerous exercise. There are times and places for it, but that is between the school and its community, and the community has every right to see how that data reflects what's going on that school, but that's a conversation for the locals to have. It doesn't have that much validity further afield. Mr Bootfelt says there remains what he calls a healthy scepticism about the policy, and principals will be alert to any signs that the standards could become an exercise in school accountability rather than educational improvement. 
every principal will have to, as the debate matures through the year, come to some point in saying, can I live with this? Is this right for teaching and learning? Is this right for the students in my school? How does a special needs student see their report coming below the, the line or in the grey area that says they're not performing as expected? If they can't live with that, then they, with their boards, will have to make some decision about to what degree can I support this? Or will perhaps I just apply for schools that might be in a decile 9 or 10 instead of a decile 1? But it is ultimately one of ethics and what you believe in terms of good teaching and learning practice. We need to get it right in terms of a national policy that we can, as a profession, have belief in that they will in fact lift teaching and learning for our individual students in our schools. The Minister, Anne Tolley, is well aware of what many in the education community regard as the risks inherent in a national standards policy. A photo call for a group of highly regarded international assessment specialists who attended a symposium in Queenstown last month. They also provided advice to Mrs Tolley on how New Zealand could implement national standards and avoid the pitfalls. For countries such as England and the United States, children's assessment is a high-stakes exercise which can tarnish the reputations of schools and teachers. An emeritus professor, James Popham, from the UCLA Graduate School of Education and Information Studies, says teachers and administrators are judged as inadequate if their schools don't make the required amount of progress. The kind of assessment we have in the U.S. stigmatizes educators more than it stigmatizes students in, in the sense that our national testing law called the No Child Left Behind Act requires that uh, teachers and administrators make sufficient progress each year or they are judged inadequate. That is, you can be teaching in a school where it's identified as a failing school. Well, that clearly stigmatizes the people who operate that school. Now, it is true that along the way, some of the students don't do well on the test, but this particular law and our use of standards is focused more on making teachers accountable and therefore potentially embarrassing teachers. Furthermore, he says that no child left behind policy hasn't worked. There's a great deal of talk about how all children can learn and that's wonderful, but the truth is that the tests we are using to judge the caliber of student learning are such that they measure more often what the students bring to school than what they are taught there. And that's one of the perils I think that we have to worry about in New Zealand. If there are to be assessments that are used to judge how well students are doing with respect to these goals, we must make sure those tests accurately reflect how well kids have been taught. Professor Popham says there's no reason why New Zealand should go down the same route. Now in New Zealand, you have the opportunity, because you don't have a constraining law, you have the opportunity to install ways that get at standards attainment in a variety of fashion, uh, not just with a single test. In America, we tend to use a single test. Standards by themselves simply describe what we want children to learn. And in our country, we've made a serious mistake. When people get together to decide what the standards ought to be, they literally engage in a wish list. They say, oh, I'd like them to learn this, I'd like them to learn that. And there are too many standards to be taught in the time available, too many standards to be assessed. So if you can prioritize your standards and focus on the really most significant ones, measure them in myriad ways, lots of ways, not just one, you can have a winning system. In England, national tests and accompanying league tables which rank schools according to their test results have for many years sent a shudder up the collective back of educators here. 
A professor of education at the University of London, Gordon Stobart, says England's testing system is proof of unintended consequences. One of our concerns in England is that we're very organised around levels in our national curriculum and children are supposed to reach a certain level at a certain age, level 4 at 11 years old for example and kids and teachers talk about themselves as levels and it really does become quite a powerful label because kids will say I'm only level 3, um, I'm no good, there's a classic piece of work where a girl called Hannah says um, I'll be a nothing then because she's not going to reach level four. And I've got a colleague in London who's really followed kids this way, and it takes on more than just, I'm a bit behind in my learning. It becomes, you're a level two person. You can't expect much of a life. And somebody who's level six has got a good future. It becomes moral. So this learner identity becomes a very fierce thing. And for kids, particularly for kids who are dropping a little bit behind, who are level three, there's a kind of, you've let the school down, you're, you're a disappointment. He says New Zealand's foray into national standards is being watched with interest overseas. Rather than national tests, which does all this distorting the teaching and learning, the idea of having some kind of standardised tasks, I think is good because it reassures parents that this is how kids are doing on outside stuff. So I can see the importance of that. The fact that it's coming round to some kind of, it looks like testing, even though you've got a variety of tests, so it hasn't got quite the same feel as England and America. I can see the politics of it, and we'll see how it goes. It's all down to how this is structured, how much teach judgment counts, and how broad you keep things as you're doing this. And Tolly says she's paid heed to the warnings, particularly about national testing. What we're doing is quite different. It's not a slice at any one particular time. It's how a child is moving. So what are the expectations and where is the child in relation to that? And what do we need to do to get them either closer to the standard if they're below it or moving well above it? As a parent, I would be just as concerned if my child started at the beginning of the year well above the standard and flatlined as I would be if they started below the standard and flatlined. What we're going to do now is we're going to get into our pairs and we're going to look at each other's writing and using the success criteria that you made up. These Wellington 9 and 10 year olds are getting a lesson in how to assess each other's work. Kandala's school pupils Brendan and Simon explain what that involves. We're marking each other's persuasive writing. I did two. Homework should be banned and cards shouldn't be banned. So, so what sort of things should you have in a persuasive writing exercise? You should describe the point of view clearly. It should be written for the reader. The introduction should clearly tell the reader the point of view. The con- conclusion should return to the point of view. Each main argument should have its own paragraph. Their classmate Adam is enjoying the exercise. I like doing this sort of stuff because we can talk. We don't have to be all quiet. Sometimes that gets a bit boring. Classmates Caitlin and Priscilla agree. I think we learn more with these kind of tests because um, we're learning how to do about like four things in one. Like we're learning how to do, um, do all that kind of stuff on the list and we're learning how to mark a bit of writing. We're learning how to write a bit of persuasive writing and how like you like learn more. Like, yeah, like 
So how did Priscilla rate Caitlin's efforts? Well, she did very good, but she's got a few things to work on. Such as? Like use more repetition to stress ideas. Nearby, Charlotte, Francesca and Adam are also delivering verdicts on their classmates' work. Um, she's quite good. What does she need to work on? Um, her, I think it's evidence and examples and use more conjunctions. Well, he sort of needs to like get the paragraph. He needs to have one idea in one paragraph more because he's got them about they might bark or squeak and then he's just gone off onto that. Their principal at Kindala School, Louise Green, says the children's work goes right to the heart of what schools are trying to achieve. The whole point is that we are trying to develop self-regulated learners, so students who understand what they're learning, understand what their next steps are, what needs to happen for them to progress. This new regime of national standards, what is the kind of feeling at the moment about how that might change practice in schools? We will be interested to see what the standard is, to see how that fits with the standards that we already hold, whether we're in line with what the thinking is or whether we've got some work to do in adjusting our thinking. These parents collecting their children after school say they've heard little about national standards but overall are pleased with the way their children are being taught. No, nothing about it at all, Sobby. No, I haven't heard much about them, actually, no. But, um, yeah, this school's really good at giving us information. We have um, meetings once a term, is it, for you know, telling us about the curriculum, and so they keep us well informed. I know that this year there was a lot more assessment. In fact, I had a meeting with a teacher yesterday to talk about my son and how they'd been going on the various assessments, so it was kind of reassuring to know that that was going on. We used to learn about topics and subjects and they seem to learn more about how to learn or rather than doing an assignment on Mexico, they'll say, I'm doing something on persuasive language. It's very, very different. The chairperson of the Kandala School's Board of Trustees, Bill Courtney, says he and his fellow board members have had to rethink their ideas of what children do in the classroom. We all grow up with the test that says you scored 67% in maths and he got 72. Right, so that means he's smarter than you. So we've gone a long, long way away from that. And what Louise and the lead team have worked with us is to understand this thing that they call formative assessment. Now, the primary source of information for the teacher is to assess at the start of the year or during the year and saying, what have I actually got in my class? What strengths have they got, weaknesses? Where have I got to work? And that can range a whole range of skills and knowledge even within 22 kids in a classroom. He says he sees the effects of the change in approach in his own children. Now, my six-year-old girl knows how to think. What is the purpose of my writing today? Am I writing to inform someone? Am I doing a piece of persuasive writing where I'm trying to put forward an argument? Am I being critical and critiquing something? They can do that from a very young age. And as we heard earlier from the, the class of nine and ten-year-olds, they can actually learn to critique someone else's writing. Francis Nelson from the NZDI says one of the key issues to come out of the Queenstown Symposium was the critical nature of formative assessment. Formative assessment is when teachers look at what children can do and where their next learning needs to be focused to take them that next step, that's that improvement stuff. So there's a whole movement away from parents and teachers telling children what to do and pulling them into getting them to... to be aware of what they're trying to achieve and how they'll get there and using the appearance, using the teacher and the teaching process to move them to where they know they need to go.
She says one of the issues the sector must look really closely at is how much the national standards policy will affect formative assessment. If there is a sign that that will happen, then we should abandon it and we should try and make sure that whatever does come in is going to enhance our ability to get kids to where they need to go, not hinder it. And I think there are the discussions that people will be having about if we're so focused on a test, then we will narrow down what we teach to make sure that the children can do the things that we're testing, and we want to avoid that like the plague. But Ms Nelson reiterates that the greatest concern about the standards is how the government intends to use the information that will be generated as a result of schools reporting on how many students meet the standard and how many fall short. Kandala School Principal Louise Green is worried too about what could happen if the policy goes wrong. A whole lot of things will happen if national standards are used in, in a scurrilous way and I think that the harm to children is the paramount one and we know children get anxious about testing, we know that they'll judge themselves on that and there's so much more to life and to being a person than reading, writing and doing mathematics. The child who perhaps has difficulty reading might have a fabulous wealth of ideas that just don't get assessed if you're using a national standard in writing. So you have to be really careful to make sure that the whole child is kept whole and that their spirits aren't, aren't deadened. The board's chair, Bill Courtney, says while he understands the need to tackle the persistent underachievement of some children, he's unsure if national standards are the answer. So we can understand the drive behind the policy. The question is, is this the right tool to use? So are there other means that we can use rather than taking the national standards right across every school? Too early to tell, as we said earlier, but is it a sledgehammer to crack a peanut? We don't know. The minister defends the move. The ones who are doing it now just carry on doing what they're doing. I don't think we're using a sledgehammer. That would be if we were bringing in a new assessment system. What we're saying is, look, half of you are doing it already. That's great. Keep Keep doing what you're doing. We don't want to. We don't want to change. We want, we're happy for you to continue using those current assessment techniques. What we're actually saying is, the rest of you have got to step up. You've got to learn how to use effective assessment because that's affecting student learning. So this is to bring that other half up to the standard that's been set by the rest of the sector. Besides, Mrs. Tolly believes there's actually a lot of support for the policy. We had a very clear mandate to come in and put this policy into place. Everywhere I go and talk to parents, they're absolutely delighted because there's a, there's a feeling that teachers actually own the education process. It's about parents, it's about children, and so there's a, a lot more uh, people in the conversation. And the consultation process that we're rolling out will include them too. Is this about not trusting teachers? No, I think we have some fantastic teachers out there. I just don't think we've got enough of them. And we want to make sure that all teachers are using modern assessment techniques effectively for student learning. The NZDI's Francis Nelson says teachers have no argument about doing what's best for students. Allowing the collated information to be put out into the public arena, however, is a different matter. We don't have an issue with sharing data with those people who need it. We don't have a, a problem in sharing the data that is required for statistical purposes that can't be used in a negative way against schools. But it's a process that needs to be worked out with the Minister to satisfy 
all parties basically that it will not be used to harm individual students, individual schools or the sector as a whole. An accountability regime that gives us good tools to look at where children are and where we need next to go individually as teachers and as a school, we'll be happy with that. But if it's going to start to undermine us because we're always fighting off the public demons about whatever we are perceived in the media through the league table concept, we would resist that very strongly. People will say, though, whatever a school is, its results are its results. Aren't you being a little bit precious about it? You're absolutely right, and they are the results that schools share with their communities. I am yet to be convinced as to why you would want to share that in, a, in an uninformed way with the rest of the country. The parents who have children at our schools need to know what their child can do, where they sit on a, in a national kind of picture, and what school's doing about that. And then they will make decisions about the value of that school and whether their child is getting a good deal there. And we all believe that that's an appropriate way to go. That does not mean that you should be putting material out into the public domain that can be misconstrued, which is what league tables do. The lack of certainty about how the information will be used has prompted a group of the country's top education academics in an unusual move to urge the government to ensure that under the policy, the harm to children is minimised. In a paper to the government, the New Zealand Assessment Academy says the introduction of standards is a major break from current practice in schools and must be managed carefully. A spokesperson for the group, an associate professor of education at Canterbury University, Alison Gilmore, says the concern is that in any assessment policy, there's enormous potential for things to go wrong. The national standards have been introduced with a view to assessing against them and reporting against them. And I think it's very important to continue the focus on the information that is collected and reported to be one on educational improvement, not for accountability. And that is the very tricky edge that the government has to walk, I think. From our perspective, we would argue the sites have to be very clearly on improving the educational experiences of children as a, an outcome of collecting this information. Professor Gilmore says the power of assessment is huge. Because it's kind of an overt expression of the quality of teaching that children get, the rate of, uh, of their learning, um, their level of their learning. Because it's the only overt indicator of what's happening inside schools, it has an enormous impact, no matter kind of how subtle the introduction might be. And Tolly says she does want to ensure the information is used in a responsible way to minimise the possibility of league tables. At this stage, though, she can't offer any reassurances to calm fears about a worst-case scenario. I think we're focused on, on raising achievement levels for students, and we've got to make sure that the fears of the unknown don't stop us from doing that. If we're afraid of what the media is going to do with information, we'd never do anything. It's a view unlikely to appeal to a sector acutely sensitive about the issue of assessment. The minister will have to tread a careful path to keep schools on side and ensure they don't feel they're being sacrificed in order for the government to fulfil an election promise. That programme was written and presented by Gail Woods. It was produced by Sue Ingram and was first broadcast in April 2009. In October that year, the Education Minister said information from the National Standards Scheme would be presented in a way that would discourage the media from producing league tables that rank schools.